0: So we we decided one night, I look, we're not leaving our office until we came up with a name. And we looked in the dictionary. And at that time, there were so many other guides or searches or directories on the web. We said, look, let's look up acronyms that started with YA, yet another. And we looked at yet another something, something. And Yahoo really stood out. If you look in the dictionary, it means somebody who's very uncivilized. It was from Gulliver's Travel. And David said, you know, it's perfect. I, I, he grew up in Louisiana and and everybody called him a Yahoo anyway. So it kind of stuck. It was something self deprecating. It was for fun. It never took ourselves very seriously and never in a million years. I thought it would become a brand.
1: Welcome to straight talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, Chairman of the Paulson Institute. And today I'm speaking with Jerry Yang. Jerry co-founded Yahoo! in 1994 and served on the board of directors until January 2012. While at Yahoo! he led several initiatives, including two of the biggest investments in the internet sector, Yahoo! Japan and Alibaba Group. He currently works with and invests in technology entrepreneurs through Ame Cloud Ventures, is innovation investment firm. He is widely recognized as a visionary and pioneer in the internet technology sector. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. You've been an internet entrepreneur from the earliest days and operating at the intersection of China and Silicon Valley for some time now. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now let's start at the beginning. You were born in Taiwan, but raised from an early age in California. Talk a bit about your upbringing and how did you get interested in technology and innovation?
0: Thank you, Hank, thanks for having me. And it goes without saying, I'll say it in the beginning and I'll say it at the end, but you're one of my heroes and I hope um, we can have a broad range discussion about a number of things, but I also know that I value your views on all these things as I've learned so much from you over the years. I regard myself one of the luckiest people alive. You know, I I did immigrate to the United States. I came in 1978 as a 10-year-old from Taiwan. And you'll remember this is... Shortly after, the United States recognized mainland China as the China, and Taiwan used to be the official China up until then. And I think as a consolation prize, there was probably some immigration visas extended to Taiwanese who had American um, family. My mother's sister, my aunt, married a Chinese-American, so she was a U.S. citizen and she applied for us to come over. My mother, who's a single mother, and my younger brother, she really had no strategic plan, if you will. She said, look, I have two young boys. It was mandatory military service. And I think in 1978, 79, the world thought Taiwan is going to go to war. And and so she just picked us up and off to California we came. And I remember landing in LAX. And... Uh, saw blue sky and skyscrapers. I mean, there were skyscrapers in Taipei, but it was not a lot of blue sky. It was pretty industrializing back then. And I remember there was a lot of pollution. And so, in um, LA is, as I've learned, wasn't, you know, the, it wasn't the greatest example of clean air either, but compared to Taipei, it was, it was gorgeous. And I just love growing up in California and I'm obviously still Californian. And so that's certainly the first stroke of luck that I've had to be able to be, in California, in the eighties, in San Jose, which is the heart of Silicon Valley, before it was Silicon Valley, it was all orchards, you know? And so I grew up with my mom being a middle-class teacher, teaching English to immigrants. I remember her doing her taxes, never really making more than 30 or $40,000 a year. But I think my brother and I were happier than clams.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing when you look across so many industries or academia, how many difference makers in the US are immigrants. And they love the United States and the United States uh, welcomed them. Now, you became one of the most important pioneers of the internet age. You co-founded Yahoo in 94, and it very quickly became a crucial roadmap for the internet for millions of people. So talk about what it took from the time you arrived to when you created, uh, helped found Yahoo.
0: Well, again, if you take the luck being the right place in the right time theme, you know, I was fortunate to go to Stanford University. It's my alma mater as an undergraduate. I didn't think I could afford it. And my mom, you know, wanted us to apply somewhere in California so we could be close. But I had scholarships, full rides, and a number of other places. But at Stanford, I got in, and I had a financial aid package, which included a lot of loans and grants and work study. And um, it had one attraction, Hank, which was at Stanford. You didn't have to declare your major until junior year. All these other places, I had to decide what I was going to be when I go in as a freshman. And so, you know, this idea of, wow, I don't have to be an engineer was really appealing. So I I went to Stanford and knowing I didn't have to declare and not knowing exactly what I want to do. But of course, I ended up being an engineer anyway. But I I found my own way there rather than having to be preordained. And if you remember, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, the economy was going through a bit of a recession. I had my master's degree from electrical engineering at Stanford in 1990. And I think I got two job offers and neither job I, I wanted at all. It was sales engineering an entry-level job. My mom was very eager for me to go make some money so she doesn't have to support us anymore. But I, I decided to waste more time and stay in school. And, and that turned out to be fortuitous for me. I, I joined a PhD program at Stanford University. I, I met my co-founder, David Philo. And while we were supposed to be working on our PhD, we were playing on the internet. And, you know, sort of the 1994 time frame was when The internet went from being a research and the defense department networking protocol into the beginning of consumerism, which is this invention of the World Wide Web. It was invented in 1989 by Tim Berners-Lee, and by 1992-93, there were starting to be browsers and servers. Netscape became a big company in 1993. And so this idea that all of a sudden you can point and click with your mouse and enter into a world where all this information was. And the idea that you can be a person anywhere in the world, if you knew how to set up a web server and type some HTML code, you can publish once and everybody in the world can use it, totally decentralized was astounding. And that was when David and I said, well, you know, let's collect websites. Let's see what's going on out there. And it was a lot of physics department to music fan pages, to sports pages, but it, it got more sophisticated over time really quickly because of this decentralization. You didn't have to register anywhere. You just got to get a website name and put up your website and off you went. But, you know, Stanford played a critical role. We were on the campus in the corner of the engineering buildings doing this as a hobby. It was, it was nothing related to our research at the time. And, um, but, you know, you can't think of a better incubator than Stanford University in 1993, 1994.
1: Amazing. So where where did the name Yahoo come from?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, David and I have played different roles. David was the guy that made all the stuff work. He was the tech genius and I was the outward-facing person. And David, in his infinite wisdom, decided to call our service Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web. And had we kept that name, obviously we would never be talking today, Hank. So so one night we decided that, you know, we can't call it Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web. And David refused to put his name on it. So it wasn't going to be David and Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web. You'll remember, there was this, this is the time when Bill and Ted's excellent adventure was, and, and we felt like we were Bill and Ted. So we, we decided one night, I says, look, we're not leaving our office until we came up with a name. And we looked in the dictionary, and at that time, there were so many other guides or searches or directories on the web. That we said, look, let's look up acronyms that started with YA, yet another. And we looked at yet another something, something, and Yahoo really stood out. If you look in the dictionary, it means somebody who's very uncivilized. It was from Gulliver's Travel. And David said, You know, it's perfect. He grew up in Louisiana and and everybody called him a Yahoo anyway. So it kind of stuck. It was something self deprecating. It was for fun. It never took ourselves very seriously. And never in a million years, I thought it would become a brand.
1: Funny, I I went to Dartmouth and that's what the Harvard guys call Dartmouth people, right? (laughs) so what were some of the biggest obstacles you faced along the way? And how did you overcome them?
0: You know, I think starting businesses and building companies from scratch is a real trial of your, your ability to persevere. You have to think big and small at the same time. You have to be tactical and strategic. And for us, I think it was, you know, number one, at least for me, was a decision to put my PhD on hold. And to go pursue this real time as a business, because we never thought this was going to be business. I mean, we would be writing business plans to do other things. And while we're working on Yahoo, thinking it's just a hobby, you know, venture capitalists start calling and companies started calling. And we said, well, you know, maybe if all these other people thought there's a, something here, maybe we should think of that there's something here. So, this idea of really committing to it rather than keeping it as an option, that was number one. And number two is convincing others to join you when you're just two of us. You had to go and and talk to other people to say, hey, this is a really good idea. And this idea of selling your idea and selling your company and having them join you, uh, it wasn't difficult, but it was an obstacle that I had to learn to overcome. And and I think, you know, the Internet at that time was already started to take off. Nescape, you know, went public in 94 and and everybody was trying to find the next Nescape. But I really think it was the hardest, Hank, for us in the first few years was just, it's like the Oklahoma land grab. You had to run as fast as you can, and you had to plan a flag down, whether it's Yahoo News, Yahoo Sports, Yahoo Finance, Yahoo this, Yahoo that. And it was really just to keep our head above water, it felt like.
1: Yeah, and, and you, you did what I think all really good entrepreneurs do. You ended up defining that job expansively. You know, you thought big and persevered. So now I'd like to move to some of the challenges today. So we started at the beginning and now today. In those early days, the internet seemed to represent a sense of unbounded opportunity. It's still a huge opportunity, of course, but now we have the downsides of the democratization of information. You know, that issue has become much more prominent. So Jerry, give us some wisdom here. How can we chart a better course?
0: well i you know i think never in my career it's been 25 years since starting of yahoo you know in 25 short years we went from you know total greenfield startup mode all the way now to big tech and it just shows you how quickly the revolution around information and financial and everything else has gone from sort of you know off of mainstream to now mainstream and And I I think as you've noted and you've seen, I think countries around the world are dealing with it differently. And I do think that there are a number of things that big tech has done that probably people can criticize. But at the same time, I I do think many of those companies that I grew up with, you know, uh, there are no clear guardrails defined and regulations were often trailing what the companies were doing. And so I think one thing that we all encourage now, and certainly even probably about a decade ago is when you saw things like the Arab Spring and and people using the internet to engage in certainly in the Middle East, it was potentially used to create democratic movements was that there probably should have been more dialogue between the government and the regulators and the companies that were starting up. Now, was it possible back then and you were in the government? It's hard to know because things were moving so fast. But now I think there is a lot clearer idea between technology companies, technology trends, whether it's cryptocurrency or dual-use technology. There is plenty of government and private industry uh, discussions. I think the big techs obviously have established their large domain. You know, many of these companies are as big as countries themselves. And so I I think there are continues to be challenges. You see the Europeans doing certain things. Obviously, the Chinese have done other things and the U.S. continue to try to push. But I think traditional ways of market regulation may or may not work well in this day and age. You want the country to have strong competitors in certain scale places. And then you you also want to make sure there's not abuse in that marketplace.
1: It's fascinating because if you think back over the history of capitalism and markets that always, you know, markets have run ahead of regulation, right? but then ultimately government has to impose regulation to really make the world a civilized place, right? And to harness the markets. And so you have to continually to update the regulation so that it works for society and the issue with technology is it's moving so fast, right? It's been hard for governments to, to catch up. And these issues are very difficult issues and they're gonna be done differently in different countries. So it's a, it's a fascinating topic and one that's gonna receive increasing attention. Let's talk a bit about what you're working on today. In 2012, you founded IMA Ventures tell our listeners about what motivated you to start ame and what you're trying to achieve
0: well Hank I, you know I, I'm one of the luckiest people you know and and uh, you know I started Yahoo we can talk a little bit later about Japan and China but I was on on the passenger seat to see the rise of the internet in China and then in 2012 I, I left Yahoo I felt I missed out on so many entrepreneurial things that were happening at the time there was this Emergence of big data. There was this emergence of cloud. There was this emergence of mobility. You know, a powerful computer in your hand, and I felt like all these exciting things were happening in the technology world. And I was at Yahoo doing none of it. I was, you know, too busy trying to figure out complicated financial transactions like cash-rich split-offs and things like that. So I had I had a friend who said to me, "You know, Jerry, you ought to just take some of your money, the money that you can lose tomorrow and you won't matter, and just go back to investing." you know, two founders in a garage. And, you know, I thought about it. I laughed it off. You know, I never thought I would be Yahoo. But the more I thought about it, the idea just kept coming back to you. And and Hank, you know how it is. It's just like when something is so obviously right to do, it just keeps coming back to you. And so I finally pulled a you know, trigger and left. And I remember the day I left Yahoo and I I thought I would miss Yahoo and I I don't miss it at all. I, I felt like I was at peace with that departure and embarking on a journey on investing in entrepreneurs through Ame Cloud Ventures. Ame means RAIN in Japanese, and, and it's also the initials of my wife and two kids. But this idea of cloud and RAIN you know, really is uh, uh, the genesis of creating my business. And the idea is that there's going to be so much data-driven businesses that get created. The value creation around data is going to be huge. And for once in my business career, I just let the data take me where the investment opportunities went. I I didn't have a macro thesis other than data. I didn't say we have to go into enterprise or consumer. And so this journey has been fabulous. You know, we, we invested in companies like Zoom. We were one of their first investors, but we've wandered into AI, robotics, space tech, food tech. And I would say probably the one that surprised me the most, Hank, is being able to invest in this intersection between biology and digital. So this whole life science and automation and or the genomics and biomics revolution, things I would have never thought 10 years ago I would be in. And what's great about it is I continually meet great entrepreneurs. They still find what I say relevant, thank goodness, but I learn so much from them and and derive so much energy from them. Most of them are, are now younger than me, and it's wonderful. And- I can't imagine doing something else. You know, I I thought I'd go start another company. I thought I, I, you know, but this is a great way for me to stay current. And quite frankly, think about some of the bigger issues that we lie ahead. I mean, we talked about big tech and, and lessons learned there. If you think about digital biology, you think about artificial intelligence, you think about sustainability as an investment area. We need not only have the marketplace and the regulators more in sync, we need to have philosophers and ethicists and social scientists and all these people who need to make sure we don't get AI wrong or we don't get biology wrong. (laughs) You know, so how do we build companies of the next decade or or this century that are going to not just be great capital companies, but also great human companies?
1: I tell you, what a great time to be an investor, particularly if you're Jerry Yang, right? (laughs) But (laughs) There's so much going on in the world and there's nothing to keep you current like investing. So I would now like to uh, change gears and go in a different direction because you're a very busy man and you've recently launched a major initiative dedicated to serving Asian Americans and fighting anti-Asian discrimination. It's the largest ever philanthropic effort to support the Asian-American community. Tell us about the effort and talk about your goals and how you're working to achieve them.
0: Well, Hank, a group of our friends in the Jewish community from the Anti-Defamation League, actually, the ADL, came to a group of us in May of 2020, so over a year ago as of this taping, and came to us and said, you know, we have some alarming things that we are watching through their work on anti-Semitism. And so we wanna share it with you. And we all got on a Zoom call and they said that what we're noticing at ADL is that hate speech against Asian Americans are starting to become normalized. And I said, what does that mean? They said, well, you know, it's now more or less accepted to be hating on Asian Americans. And they said that the pattern, according to sort of timeline, is that the hate speech becoming normalized will turn into hate incidents, and the hate incidents will start out to be verbal and harassment, then it will get gradually more serious. And I think it's largely played out, sadly, exactly as our friends at ADL had told us. And also the same month last year, May, May being the Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month here in the United States, they also aired a PBS documentary last year in May of 2020. I was asked to be part of it. I was in the last hour of a five hour documentary that PBS produced on Asian Americans. And when they f- asked me to film into it, you know, three years ago now, I didn't think much of it. I was like, oh, it's another Asian American success story thing. But I, I was during the pandemic and we, we got our family together and watched it with our kids. And it was five hours of Asian American history in the United States. It started with the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1850. It went through South Asians, meaning Indians, in Louisiana in the late turn of the century, to Japanese internment, to the Vietnam War, to the LA riots with the Korean business owners, to Vincent Chen. And there was a conclusion that said, you know, whenever there's a geopolitical conflict with Asia, the Asians that are in America citizens or immigrants get treated like foreigners. They are always viewed as visitors rather than people who belong here. And you know, the Asian American population in the United States is a growing one. We're about 23 million and growing, and still more than half are first generation immigrants like myself. But the number of native born and second generation, third generation Asian Americans are on the rise and will probably flip in the next five to 10 years, depending how much immigration happens. And as I look at my kids and and my friend's grandkids and so forth, they don't have anywhere else to go. It's not like they're going to go back to where I came from or my mom came from. So there's decidedly a different view about Asian-Americans in America. The pandemic obviously is a driving force, but this has happened throughout history. And I think for us, founding the Asian-American Foundation, TAF, if you will, is a way of trying to fundamentally make people aware of these issues. It's not just hate, it's belonging and prosperity. It's educating America about the role of Asian Americans in our culture and society. It's about tracking down hate incidents and, and making sure that we're doing something about it. But also, you know, ultimately doing more awareness and driving more research around Asian Americans. One of the glaring things that we found out was, if you look at foundations and corporations who give money to societies, different nonprofit organizations, the Asian American organizations, which is there are dozens of them that have done great work for decades, but the Asian American organizations get less than 0.5%, that's 0.5% of funding from corporations, funding from foundations. And so we started this giving challenge, which we said to companies, we said to foundations, hey, just give money to AAPI causes. It could be your internal DEI initiatives. It could be uh, give some some organizations, or you can give money to TAF. And we've raised over 1.1 billion in commitments over the next five years. And it's something that surprised us in the sense of how big the number can be, but it also just, there's so much resonance in people understanding and standing with us in solidarity and in a way to say, Hey, look, you know what your problem is, is our problem. And, and in some ways recognition of how important Asian Americans are in America.
1: Jerry, I really congratulate you for that. That that is something that's sorely needed. And I tell you, Asian Americans are making a huge contribution to this country. So again, keep up the good work there. I now want to switch to another topic. You and I spend a fair amount of time talking about U.S.-China relations, and we both despair because this is a relationship that has become very fraught, very difficult. Of course, technology is, and the technology competition is sort of ground zero right now for the fact that this relationship is troubled. So give our listeners your assessment of the relationship. How do you think we got here and the trajectory
0: we're on? I think the the trajectory is one of, uh, hopefully, strategic competition. And I say hopefully because I think it could be even worse than that if we don't manage it right. And um, I think you were there on the ground floor with a lot of the strategic and economic dialogues, or or even before that. But the, the honest reality is that as China has risen in economic power, the ideological differences between you know, more or less an authoritarian regime versus the democracy that we have in the United States, that ideological difference is coming in a conflict. And as China has used its technology to maintain or extend its political rule, that has created tremendous angst and warning to the United States. And I think that's how we got here. I I think the analogy somebody gave me the other day is, you know, this is a little bit like, you know, a a pride of lions that, that now you have two dominant lions and they're each eager to decide their own rules. I, I would say, if you look at China's perspective, they would say, hey, you know what, we try to follow your rule for 30 years and, and we don't like it. And I think in the US's case, the goal is to, whether unilaterally or or through multilateral means, trying to contain China to make sure they continue to be a part of the global community. And and when you have two dominant entities that are trying to set rules, it's a very dangerous time. And I think Graham Allison said it in his book about the challenger versus incumbent. And as you said, I think the technology issues is the tip of the spear in this decoupling, in this separation of the two countries, not only for political reasons, but also for, you know, just the, the, the difficulty in deciding what technology is used for what the dual use nature of technology these days, you can go buy off the shelf things and build pretty powerful tools. So I'm not optimistic. I don't think the Biden administration is going to be any easier on China. And I'm not, and I don't think necessarily being easier is right. I I, I do think where we ought to head is the ability to find something in common to work on, because I I think you can pick things that you want to fundamentally, you know, disagree over, or you, you can find things that are, you know, that you will compete over, and then you need to find things that you can work on. And whether it's pandemics, whether it's sustainability, whether it's any other, a number of other issues, but so far, those are far in between. There are a lot more areas of conflict than they are of cooperation.
1: Yeah, and you and I have talked about this a lot, because competition is going to be the cornerstone of the relationship. It's going to define that relationship. So the key is how to have that competition be healthy uh, without unnecessary confrontation, right? Right. We sure learned that uh, confrontation without healthy competition isn't really giving us the results that we would like. And as I look at it, and we both look at it from the standpoint, we're both patriotic Americans. And so we look at it and we say, you know, the United States needs to be smart. We don't want to do things in an attempt to hurt or constrain China that's going to hurt us, right? And so the thing that's hard is to see If we sequester so much technology in the United States that we end up cutting ourselves off from the global ecosystem and we make ourselves look too much like China, that's not going to be the way to win here. And and so it's really quite a complicated, difficult issue. And it's one we're going to be dealing with for the foreseeable future. But we need to find also, we need to figure out where we're going to compete, where there's conflict and how to minimize the conflict and and maintain peace, right? And then where we can cooperate and work together. Absolutely
0: right. I I think I learned from you, you know, you want small gardens and high walls versus big gardens and low walls. And and I think sort of, you know, one size fit all policies that put the entire globe at risk in terms of, um, and I I think, look, I, I view that we need to invest in the United States. I, I think the, the best way to compete with China is to be better and stronger ourselves. And, and I do think the, the idea of reinvesting in basic R&D, the idea of reinvesting in infrastructure and rebuilding our global presence, because you know, we, we, we're going to need other countries to help us. I mean, if you look at this issue of data, Hank, data is gonna is the new oil. And how you have enough data in a Western democracy or a series of Western democracies that can combat authoritarianism is going to be one of the defining issues. And how do we create leadership? How do we do the best we can? It's going to take you know all parts of our society to get behind a, a more competitive America. And, and then I think you have multiple options against China. I think by closing our walls and closing our doors and closing our, our schools to immigration and students, uh, that is no way to get better and stronger than my
1: and so we've got whatever it is, five percent of the global population out there, and the rest of the world isn't going to close themselves off to China. But I want I want to talk about some areas where we can work together, like you know, on climate and sustainability. But first, I want to drill down a little bit deeper on this technology. So how have the bilateral tensions, particularly around technology, impacted? the ability of Silicon Valley startups to raise necessary capital. Has that been an impact to date? And what about on startups in the Chinese market?
0: Well, I, I think you're seeing this idea of due circulation happening in tech and, and, and certainly VC and startup businesses where, you know, the capital from China pretty much is non-existent right now in the United States in terms of venture.
1: It's non-existent because we have more or less cut it off, right?
0: Correct. Well, it, it is you know the whole foreign influence accusations of Chinese capital influencing IP and and so whether it's direct or by just sort of practical. I mean, as you know, capital flows First resistant. Walk. Yeah, people don't want to put money where it's going to be harder. They want to put it money where it's easier. So, uh, so so I, I think that definitely has, has subsided. I don't know if it's changed the funding environment. I mean, we've had so much money and liquidity in the economy that you know, venture capital is still doing just fine. But but I do think that part of it is gone. Uh, there are still Chinese entrepreneurs and Chinese engineers in the United States, but there are certainly many more that have gone to places like Canada, where there are more better immigration policy towards them. We've seen them in Switzerland. A lot of our data scientist companies are hiring in Switzerland and, and Israel. And so, like you said, the, the, the rest of the world isn't shutting their door to China. And, and China's one of the biggest of the people of China is their talent base, right? And, and I've always tried to make a distinction between the, the, the regime of the Chinese government versus the people. And, um, and, and I think that's going to be one of the continual challenges is to define how we can work with people that may or may not be part of the regime. And, um, and, and I think certainly in the U.S. today, you, they're, they're kind of viewed as one and the same.
1: Now, let's talk about investment the other way. Yahoo was one of the first major US tech companies to invest in Alibaba. Would that even be possible today, given the, the potential decoupling of US China in the technology ecosystem?
0: Well, I, you know, talk about a stroke of luck. So I would say that's one of our huge ones is to be able to you know, for me to meet Jack Ma in my first trip to China and 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 then getting to know him later on through competition and being able to invest as Yahoo into Alibaba in 2005. But yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think it would be much harder today, although there are plenty of startups being generated in China and a lot of them are doing great. There are both domestic capital within China, but also outside capital that are investing in funds that are investing in China. But to do a big direct investment like that these days, it probably would be very difficult. I mean, certainly the regulators would look at it on both sides and say, "Is this is this a good idea?" So, I think that geopolitics has taken over. Certainly, the commercial environment between anything U.S. and China.
1: Yeah, and you know, Yahoo also operated in China in the Chinese market for several years in the early two thousands. And uh, so, what was it like? How would you describe? that environment for a U.S. tech company in China when you first entered?
0: Well, I I think the fact that very few American tech companies are successful in China says something. I, I always say, you know, we're if Yahoo wasn't good enough to survive and, and we were lucky enough to invest in Alibaba but left the market from an operating standpoint, if Yahoo wasn't good enough, Was, you know, Facebook bad or, 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 you know, was Facebook,
1: uh, Google,
0: I mean, yeah, you can name them all and and very few, if any, have any real presence in China. So I think, I think the conclusion tends to be that, you know, uh, the China uh, likes its own national champions. They create market regulations and they make markets to, to promote their national champions. And, and then they do allow other competitors to come in, but they don't.
1: It's not a level playing field, right?
0: I, I certainly think in tech, it's hard to argue that it is level. But yeah. But but you know, I would say in the early part of the, the 2000s to 2010, it wasn't clear. I would say even internally in China, they were debating that issue. But certainly after 2011, partly after the financial crisis, Hank, they decided that their market regulations aren't going to favor largely domestic companies. And I, I think even today, you, you see them cracking down on their own national champions through antitrust and anti-monopoly work. So, so the government continues to try to, through a lot of their policies, figure out how to best manage the growth that they need to have economically, but also all the successful companies they've created nationally.
1: And of course, the huge tech companies are under pressure and under scrutiny in every country, right? So big time in China, big time in the U.S., in, in Europe... Yes. And the Europeans are giving our big tech companies a hard time also, right? Indeed. And, and so, so it's not easy. But I want to go back again to the early days because Yahoo, Japan isn't an easy place for companies to operate. But you were operating in Japan. So describe a Japan relative to China in the early 2000s.
0: Well, I, you know, the one of our first investors at yahoo was a company called ziff davis which did computer publishing and it was bought by softbank in 1994 um and so i i got to meet masayoshi son and uh he uh, was so enthusiastic about yahoo he was so enthusiastic about the internet um he he decided to become one of our largest shareholders before we went public and one of the criteria for him investing in yahoo at the time was that we had to go to Japan. And I, I, you know, typical of Masa, I thought he was crazy. We had barely, f- I think 50 people in, in Yahoo at the time and, and Japan was way down on the list. I mean, it wasn't even, it wasn't even in the consideration. But you know, Masa and it's typical kind of infectious enthusiasm said, I'm going to personally see to it. I, I will put my best execs on it. You guys just have to come over and show us how to do it, bring over the code and we'll do everything. And so in 1996, way before anything else, uh, you know, Yahoo is barely a, a, a company here in the US, we were in Japan and true to his word, Masa literally built Yahoo Japan from the ground up. and even today, Yahoo Japan in, in Japan is a, a great internet company. Um, it's gone through a few iterations, but the brand is still strong. And so I think in Japan, you, you need a force like somebody like Masa. It's just a hard, I mean, you know, we're in the advertising business. Can you imagine trying to break into the advertising business in Japan where it's controlled by three agencies? And it's a very, very, very different environment. And we were very, very lucky to be partnered with Masa to do this.
1: And for those who don't know him, masa son was amazing, is an amazing entrepreneur in Japan. Going back to the late nineties, you know, started SoftBank, very big software company, branched out into other areas. And he was a force of nature. And so that, that, that's what it took for you to be successful in Japan. Now, I'd like to uh, just explore a little bit further is because as we said, the technology is sort of ground zero for the competition between the U.S. and China, really important markets of the future. So there's going to be strong competition around the world. And so talk about the way you see that playing out as U.S. technology companies are competing with Chinese companies around the world.
0: Well, you know, I'm a bit of an optimist when it comes to US technology companies in the rest of the world. I I think it does hinge on two of the things that you talked about. And one is our ability to define a data regime that works among countries of like mind or like governance. In the last 18 months, I think we've all seen the importance of what sovereign and borders do. And uh, to be able to to really define on, on first principle, not leave it to chance or not leave it to sort of an afterthought, what is the best way to collect what kind of data in a way that preserves individual freedom and yet allows technology to benefit their lives. And, and as much as I think we complain about um, big tech without the, the big techs, uh, you know, can you imagine our lives without um, these tools? And in, in some ways, they're, they're very positive and, and and especially in the productivity tools I think you have. Just seen tremendous amount of productivity during the pandemic through digitalization. So you could take the good things that are that came out of digitalization and try to really, you know, strengthen the strengths, if you will, to say what are the data regimes that work that can allow more advanced technology to be allowed, applied against it, more iteration, faster iteration, and um, in some ways not bog it down with rules or regulations that you know, if, if you're a company you're a company that is trying to enter. Uh, multiple markets, and if each country or each state in the United States have their own data privacy laws, it's going to be very difficult. So so one is just thinking about what makes sense to grow and benefit our end users. The second thing is financially. I I think your world, Hank, in order for Americans to compete more competitively in tech, being able to to really understand fintech is, I think, one of the next great challenges uh, and opportunities because uh, whether things are going more decentralized or, but transactions, I think are, you know, if you look at companies like Stripe or, or Square, or, you know, it's just, they're, they're, we're just at the beginning of a lot of the fintech revolution around the globe. So those are, are things that if we can figure out the data, figure out the transactional currency and the rules of the roads, I think people tend to want to be part of the Western democracy ecosystem. And um I know there are problems, but I do think the benefits are massive. We can get it done right.
1: Yeah. So we innovate like no country in the world. I mean, the engine that attracted you to the United States and the kind of innovation we've seen. So then that really gets down to, are we going to have the proper regulatory environment? And what you and I have talked about a lot is obviously we need to protect the most vitally important and critical technologies that are essential to our national security, right? And so that's where we need a, you know, a small yard and a high fence. But if we try to sequester so much technology in the United States that we end up cutting our major firms off from the global ecosystem or from so much of this global trade and supply chains and so on, and the markets of the future are going to be driven to a large extent by technology we're going to destroy our ability to
0: lead yeah
1: so, and you agree with that right
0: absolutely I, I think we have to define our leadership by really defining how not only investing in our core technologies that are becoming better um you know ai is again the, the example everybody uses is is you want, you know, you want to have AI that works for your country because AI is data and you get bad data in, you get to get bad data out. So I, I do think reinvesting in America, but also creating the leadership posture of saying, what does America do in terms of data regime, in terms of technology export that can be again viewed as helping the rest of the world think through their technology growth and, and, and opportunities. That, that's a great opportunity for America
1: and as we talked about earlier, it's it's difficult because even just figuring it out for America is hard, right? Just figuring it out for America and our allies, you know, to, to have the rules regarding data and privacy, you know, catch up with what's going on in technology and then to figure out how to do it in a world where you've got China and Russia and a number of other countries that are gonna have their own ideas. Now I want to uh, j- just conclude with a couple of questions, but before leaving China, I want to talk about sustainability and climate change because this is an area where you and I have also spent a bunch of time. It's something that's very important to you personally. And of course we know that you know when we're looking at the world that there's no way we are going to mitigate or begin to meet this climate challenge unless China's part of the solution, right? Right. Because we're by far the biggest emitter of carbon, they are ground zero for climate change in terms of what's happening in China. But we need to play a leadership role. So talk a bit about that and technology.
0: You know, it's a subject that I, I admire you for. And every time you have your Paulson Institute uh, series, you know, you, you have the sustainability forum right there, and, and you've introduced us to great change makers. And you know, it is one of the areas where. I, I think of sustainability as two-part of it. Right? It was mitigation, but also we need something fundamental, probably technology-wise, to change the trajectory. I mean, there's a whole lot we can do now, but I think if we are able to come up with, with next generation technology around carbon removal, around hydrogen, that there's a number of areas that I think we all should be looking at, it is possible. Now, I, I think everybody knows it's an urgent thing but the recent dynamic hank that I, I thought was interesting is two things one is obviously you know getting China to be a partner albeit even if it's competitive as, as, as if they want to compete to, to de our carbon in, in our system that that would be great. But the second thing I think is you know we, we have to look at environmental equity and and I think this idea of developing countries and developed countries we have to be able to supply enough, technology, we have to supply enough policy, we have to supply enough all the things that are needed to, to bring people who don't have the kind of developed economies also to be uh, sustainable. And that's obviously number one. And number two, I think people have thought about sustainability, you know, and I love your take on this as something that is, you know, it's good for the environment, it's good to save the world, it's, it's more of a altruistic, philanthropic thing. But as you are involved with the commercial side and as I'm starting to see startups, the largest economic opportunity in the world in the next 50 years could be around sustainability. So if we turn this not into just a philanthropic activity, but also a commercial and, and a market-based activity for, for economic output, I think we have a chance because when, 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 as you know, when marketplaces work right and market-driven capitalism works right, and the carbon neutrality and, and decarbonizing our economy is part of it. I think we now have the third engine to the train and, and I sure hope, um, uh, and, and, you, and, and I know you're involved in, in, in some investing in this area now. It just seems like we need to put the capital to work believing that we're gonna have a sustainable output. And that's, that's what's um, maybe in the last you know 12 months I, I've come to that realization.
1: Yeah, Jerry, I, I agree with you very strongly. I, so this is to me, climate change, sustainability, preserving our you know, biodiversity is sort of the biggest challenge I think we face in the world today. And there aren't easy answers, but the thing you and I both know is it's gonna take trillions of dollars of capital and that capital is not gonna come from the private sector for a concession on a concessionary basis. And I feel very strongly that there is a need to demonstrate that you can make climate investments to carbon reducing investments that will be highly profitable. And I do believe that when we look at what's gonna take place, it's gonna be multiple decades, rewiring society, that that is going to be a generational investment opportunity and can create hundreds of thousands of jobs in addition to mitigating this tremendous risk we face. But I also agree with you what you said at the beginning, which is even though we have to run very quickly with all the technologies we have that are already commercially viable, because this is a race against time, to reduce carbon emissions, that we're losing that race. And so at the end of the day, we're going to need to figure out how to recapture some of this carbon that's in the atmosphere, right? Because this is a three-part problem. How do we produce the power we're going to need, the electricity we're going to need for the billions of people that are going to be demanding it at the future at an affordable rate? But how do we deal with the Climate change, climate shocks that are sure to take place based upon the carbon that's already in the atmosphere, right? And so, their adaptation. And then, third, how do we decarbonize a global economy that's eighty percent reliant on carbon-based fuels today? That's going to be a long effort. It's going to take decades, and there's going to be tremendous investment opportunities. Yes. So, you, so you and I agree on that. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, Jerry. This has been a terrific discussion, but I can't let you go without asking you for advice for young listeners. I'm sure you get asked this all the time. There are all kinds of people today that are interested in tech entrepreneurship. What advice do you give them?
0: I, I see a lot of them. Um, I, I encourage them to be bold in their thinking. I encourage them to have courage because they're gonna have ups and downs. And I, I encourage them to be you know, citizens of the world. They have to go in there not as technologists only, they have to be humanists. And the best entrepreneurs I know are the ones that can have a great tech vision, but also come at it with a lot of humanity. And um, it is still the most single most biggest hope I have for our world, Hank, which is, somewhere out there and, and not exclusively in Silicon Valley or even the United States, somewhere out there, somebody's got an idea that whether I fund it or not, um, it's gonna change the world. And, and I, I truly, truly, truly believe that.
1: Jerry, this has been terrific. I like to end an optimistic note. And you know what I like about you is you define humanity and a technological vision coming together. Thank you. You bring them both together like no one else I know. thank you you for being with us today.
0: Thank you, Hank. Thanks for having me. And you are my hero. Thank you.
1: You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe.